Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 17, Class is in Session, where we will be looking at chapters 37 and 38 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of the first day of school. If you've been listening to us for a while now, you know what's coming. But if you have not, why did you start on episode 17? Go back, listen to episodes... I don't know if you want it to start on a good one, start on number three, but if you want to understand what the ever-loving heck we are talking about, I'd suggest start with number one. But if you're stubborn and you just want to start on episode 17, I can't stop you. So let me explain what we are going to do here. Every week, we will be examining a section of the book The Name of the Wind through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. Afterwards, we will take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian from Nemos of the Week, and then we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the ancillary novellas. Or B, you're a weirdo who doesn't mind knowing the future. And frankly, that's okay. We're with you, fortune tellers. Needless to say, beyond this point, here be spoilers. And finally, we'd like to remind our community that it's perfectly fine to critique the text, but we're not going to stand for any abuse of the people responsible for it. Let's be kind to one another. And now it is time for us to do our 45-second recap, and it is Phoenix's turn. If she doesn't complete her recap in 45 seconds, she's going to be eating some raspberries. Uh, no... Well, you only have to worry about that if you go over 45 seconds now, don't you? But it's a bigger section! You can't see this right now because this is a podcast, but I am making the image of the world's smallest violin player playing the world's saddest song for you right now. <laughs> Alright, so I've got my stopwatch ready. Are you ready? Yes? Alright, in three, two, one, go. Quoth and Lauren go to the bursar, who is pissed that he has to give out money, and then Lauren passes Quoth off to Sim, who sets him up with a bunk in Muse, and then introduces him to Will, Manette, and Savoy, who are some of his new classmates. Quoth then tries to visit the archives, but instead makes an enemy in the form of Ambrose. On his first day in class, he is bored because it is all review, and Hem is a sexist asshole. So Quoth tries to get out of the class by talking to Hem outside of office hours. It doesn't work. Quoth then finally gets to go into the archives. He drools over Fella and then is told by Lauren that searching for information on the Chandrian could be seen as childish. So stop it. 39.8 seconds. You did okay. See, what was all that fear about? Who said I was actually afraid? Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. Uh-huh. 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 
All right, so now we're going to get into our discussion about this section of the book. We start off the chapter bright-eyed with Lauren escorting Quoth through the university and giving him sort of the million-mile-high tour. Lauren understands that he can't just send Quoth to the bursar with a note that says, please give this boy three talents. Yeah, this is the first scholarship they've ever had. He wants to make sure there's not a misunderstanding. And let's be real, the bursar wouldn't be very good at his job if he just took a note. And then just gave everybody money. It's a major loophole, just waiting to be exploited. I do like that there is talk of the bursar, and I'm glad that he's not necessarily a completely throwaway character. And I say that because in The Wise Man's Fear, Quoth takes advantage of Mayor Alvaron's generosity, sort of. I mean, bare minimum generosity, and overcharges for tuition. They do arrive in an arrangement. That's a good way to put it. It's interesting comparing this bursar with the bursar from Terry Pratchett's Discworld, the Unseen University, who is a complete doddering nincompoop who is seldom, if ever, coherent and was my first exposure to the concept of the school bursar. Oh, Terry Pratchett. He had a hat. <laughs> <laughs> And, I mean, logistically, though, you got to figure that the school bursar has a difficult job. They're the ones who have to make sure that all the funds come in to actually pay the staff and faculty and make sure all the facilities are maintained. That is a thankless job. Accounting, I think, in general, is kind of a thankless job. At least on a lower level. You usually think of joyless individuals. This particular bursar is definitely a joyless individual. And yet his job is necessary. In many ways, they're sort of like the financial plumbers. Their job is to make sure that money is going through the pipes in the right directions and not getting bogged up in the wrong places. And let's face it, plumbing is not a glamorous job, but it's an important job nonetheless. All right, let's move on. This is our introduction to Simon, who is a young student but still a few years older than Quoth. And Lauren just kind of plucks him out of the passersby and says, here, take this. Here's your designated best friend. <laughs> I mean, that sounds funny and corny. It is true, though. If Lauren hadn't just gone and said, who's around? Simon, here, you're with Quoth now. Quoth would never have gotten Sim into so much trouble. Sim could have actually had a decent time at the university without Quoth just sticking his finger into his life and going bleh, 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 bleh. I like to think of Sim is the Cameron to Quoth's Ferris Bueller. <laughs> <laughs> One of them is a better friend to the other. Quoth got damn lucky that he ended up with Simon because think about the way that Simon approaches handling things here. He goes through the hierarchy of needs. He says, first of all, let's make sure you've got food and shelter. He doesn't take it for granted. He says, have you got that figured out yet? No? Let's get that sorted out. And then he's like, okay, now that we've got that out of the way, we'll get you signed up for classes. I'll show you around, help you get the lay of the land. And he takes him in willingly. Simon is the best case scenario for the new student orientation. True. But 
This also means that Simon infected his friend group with Quoth. <laughs> yeah, as I say, Simon is a better friend to Quoth than Quoth is to Simon. I feel for Simon. I would also, though, like to point out that it's kind of Sim's fault that Quoth is in Hem's class. Well, I mean, he signed him up for the class that everyone has to sign up for, so... I've had to take the class that everybody had to sign up for before. When I went to community college, I had to take how do you use a PC and how do you use a Mac. Now, I liked the Mac class because the teacher didn't really care if I was working on everything that she said I had to do. I was able to work on things like my Photoshop assignments and my Illustrator assignments because if you don't know, I went to community college to be a graphic designer. So the Mac lab was actually where all of the programs I needed were. She didn't care if I drew in class. She didn't care if I did anything that looked like I was distracted as long as I got my homework done. The PC class I dropped within a day because it was, this is what a mouse is. This is your pointer. This is how you get to the start menu. And mind you, this was like, I think, when Windows 2000 was a thing. Yeah, I remember those days. I already knew how to use Word and Excel. I maybe wasn't a power user on these things, but I didn't foresee myself needing them. And in the last, oh God, almost 20 years, I have not used them very much. So on the flip side, I too had to take a similar class. And while, yes, I was very familiar with the basic functionality for Word and Excel, and the first month or so of that class was useless to me, I did pick up some pretty good advanced power user tips later on in the class that actually helped me professionally when I was working as a technical writer and also in my current job doing IT work. Knowing how to put together a pivot table in Excel turns out is a really useful thing to do. Yeah, I had to suffer through a month and a half of stuff I already knew to get to it, but you know, it ended up being worthwhile. Before we leave Lauren, I really like Patrick Rothfuss's prose. Without another word, Lauren turned and walked away, his long strides making his black master's robes billow out behind him. Lauren is an interesting figure, and I think part of what drives Quoth so bonkers around him is because Quoth is used to being able to read people in an instant and Lauren is fundamentally unreadable. Which is funny when he's the keeper of all of the books. <laughs> he's probably read more than anybody else. <laughs> I kind of picture Lauren as a Spock figure who, while placid and seemingly emotionless on the outside, has a deep well of emotional reserve within him that only comes out in extreme situations. In this case, it seems to be around the destruction of his books. I see him as mostly ambivalent, but vaguely menacing. I actually see him a little more benevolent. Hmm. He's doing what's actually rational. He's not someone who is prejudging people. He's willing to give people a fair chance. He gives Quoth a fair chance and a damn sight more than many other people would because he's actually looking at Quoth as a person with potential as opposed to just looking at him as some street kid. Well, back to Simon, who takes Quoth to go sign up for a bunk in Muse. 
side note, because I've heard this so many times, but this is the first time I'm actually reading this. I initially thought for years that it was M-U-S-E, as in your muse. And it turns out it's M-E-W-S, like a cat. <laughs> that is pretty fun. One other little note about Muse, the non-Arcanum students, so the ones that are absolute first-year freshmen, beginning of everything, are on the fourth floor, the furthest away from the bathing facilities. Oh my god, why? Because... <laughs> why is there only one bathing facility in this entire thing? That's my question. Well, that's not my question. My question is why the people who are least likely to bathe would you shove away from the bathing, like... Well, they're not going to use it. But they're going to stink. I loved my school. I absolutely loved my school. DigiPen reminds me a lot of the university in terms of the way it's described. The university is described as having 10 male students to every female student. DigiPen wasn't quite that bad. For most of the departments it was, but for the artists it wasn't which means that of the entire school at the time that I went there, it was about an 80-20 split, depending on if there were people that identified without a gender or non-binary or what have you. But the 20 was the women. <laughs> and, oh my god. <laughs> the way that DigiPen has their career fair set up, each student actually sets up a booth and has employers come through and look at their displays. And the year after I graduated, I brought my employers to the career fair. And they set up refreshments and such in one of the classrooms, which was right next to the Academic Achievement Center, which was essentially where a lot of people went to do homework when they didn't want to talk to people and when they wanted some quiet. The door opened right in front of my boss and let out the stench. That was almost visible <laughs> and smacked him in the face and he just looks at me and he's just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, the Digifunk was uh, semi-sentient. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. Had a mind of its own. Mind you, I was a mentor for our College 101 class when I was a sophomore and having to have the discussions with some of the freshmen that said, we're not kidding, could you please shower with soap and wash your clothes with soap? So I, I, I don't like the implication of <laughs> the, the very, very new students being taught that they should be averse to showering. Keep in mind also, this is a medieval society where bathing is not as common. I don't think it's that medieval. Uh, it's at least early to late Renaissance. Mm. I'll give you that one. But lice infestations. Ugh. The other thing I notice here is when they talk about the food, Simmons says the food isn't bad as so long as you don't think too hard about where it might have come from. And, I mean, the challenges of running a school cafeteria mean that oftentimes you have to focus more on quantity than quality 
But for someone like Quoth, who comes from a background where he doesn't know where his next meal is going to come from, to know that he's going to get three square meals a day, that means a whole lot. You know, we oftentimes take for granted that sort of thing. I remember when I was in college, we used to always joke about our cafeteria, oftentimes calling it by the wrong name. But the fact is, there were healthy options available if we chose to eat something other than burgers and pizza. There were healthy options at DigiPen, but there was also times when the entree was a half a chicken or when they put out mac and cheese and hot dog pizza. There's healthy things there if you choose to eat them. We did have a salad bar and I did see one student just put all the bacon bits from the salad bar <laughs> into their bowl. Nothing else, just bacon bits. <laughs> Students will do weird things. But the point is, for someone like Foth, having that right there was a major step up from anything he'd had for the past three years. So I can see where Foth is coming from, and it also makes me think maybe a little more seriously about the people who were working hard to make sure I had food when I was in college. I think a little more kindly of them as a result of this. So it's in this cafeteria that Quoth gets his designated friend group. That consists mostly of Simon, Will, and the Net. Sometimes Savoy. And you could do a lot worse. You have your designated international student, you have your non-trad, and then you have your scholarship kid, you have your quote normal kid, and then you got the rich kid. Who is sometimes and sometimes not in the group. There is a point where you get to see just the sheer class difference when we meet Savoy. I know that this interaction kind of primes the pump for Quoth not to like him or Mandrag. I mean, he already doesn't like him, but I think it just puts another nail in that coffin because Savoy specifically says that Hem and Mandrag don't like him. And then we get into kind of this discussion about how to manipulate tuition. This is a very odd tuition system to me. If you can prove that you're smart, your tuition is lower. It's a weeding out process. And if you're rich enough and still an idiot, you can still go. That's the legacy system. I'm not saying it's good or just or anything like that, but... Manette is an interesting character. He's someone who seems to have found his niche at the university and does not want to leave. There was a student like that at DigiPen. I didn't know what year he was in. I didn't know what program he was in. I didn't know when he started. I didn't know when or if he would ever graduate. And he was older than I was. I was about 30 when I went. I don't know how old he is. He just was always there. He was there when I started. He was there when I left. He was there whenever I came back. Just there. Yeah, Manette has found that sweet spot where he's never rising up to the point where he garners attention, but he seems to be doing enough work in the fishery to make money to pay for his tuition, which he seems to be able to keep absurdly low. By not advancing through the ranks of the university, which I think is fine. He has an insatiable curiosity. I think in many ways he's kind of an author insert character because Patrick Rothfuss was famous for taking nine years to finish undergrad. And I kind of get the feeling that Manette has least elements of that. I'd agree with that. 
I want to talk a little bit about Savoy as a noble character because this also illustrates class difference. This is the first time Kvothe has seen someone wear a weapon at the university, which is something that's the province exclusively of the nobility. And this actually reminds me of a story that one of my high school teachers used to tell about when he was in college at Oxford. He had a friend who one day decided to go digging through the ancient bylaws of the university looking for any kind of loophole and he found one that stated that for every exam the instructor was to provide the student with a pint of ale. And so the exam came up and he goes up to the instructor and he says, before I begin I would like my ale, sir. And of course the professor looked at him like, what are you getting at here? And he pulls out a photocopy of the regulation in question. And the professor just looked at him and said, fine. He goes down to the local pub, gets him a pint of ale, brings it back, hands it to him. And that was the first day of exam. The second day of exams, the student again walks up to the professor and says, my ale, please. And then the professor looked at him and said, but first your sword, because the professor had gone back and looked at the bylaws of Oxford as well and found that every student was supposed to carry a sword with them. <laughs> and so the student then had to go and try and find a sword somewhere or fashion something <laughs> before he could take his exam. A little bit of a rabbit hole, I admit, but... No, that's adorable. <laughs> that just made me think of it. And yet, Savoy is basically spitting nails at this point because he, his tuition was so high that his allowance does not cover it. He has to give up his rooms. He has to have a room in Muse. He almost had to share a room, except as Kvothe notes, he sold his rings in order to avoid such a terrible fate. Get a load of Sherlock Kvothe over here, right? <laughs> This does remind me a little bit of when I was in high school, I had a friend who she got to do a lot of things that I definitely didn't. Now, her family didn't look terribly well off. She didn't seem like one of the rich kids on the surface, but she got a lot of opportunities. Some of those opportunities, again, I don't know if her, how her parents ultimately wound up paying for them and they probably worked their tail off for this. She got to go to France as an exchange student for a few weeks. She's gotten to travel the world. And each and every time she comes back from any of her wonderful trips, the thing that I always hear is something that went wrong. And almost never do I hear anything about the amazing trip itself. So here I am going, well, the furthest away from the United States that I have been is Canada, which British Columbia is beautiful. And I loved every single time that I've gone up to that area. I've loved every time that I've traveled to the Oregon coast. I've loved every time that I have traveled anywhere that has beautiful sunsets. Central Washington has some amazing places that you can go and just stare at for hours and see new and beautiful things. But she gets to go to places like France and Amsterdam and Germany and comes back and just all she does is complain about them. And that's what Savoy sounds like. 
especially when Quoth is sitting here going, I lived on a rooftop two weeks ago. Quoth has probably never had as much money as Savoy had just on his fingers. Granted, Savoy is a bit extra, but he at least has the grace to apologize for his rudeness. Sometimes. <laughs> He's always digging himself out of a hole and then promptly digging a new one. I also note that Savoy is not from Atour, so he is also a foreign student, much like Willem. And so Willem has a little bit of grace for him, which I think is instructive. Things that maybe seem a little outside the norm for most people may be completely different in other places. And Willem can relate to this. He comes from a different country. His first language is not a Turin. He's got a different set of cultural norms, being Shaldish. So I can respect where he's coming from. He's got a different outlook, and it's led him to be graceful, which I think we can all learn from. Near the end of the interaction in the cafeteria, Manette and Sim and Will place bets on how long it will take Foth to become part of the Arcanum, to become an Illyr. Foth is dismayed at the idea that it could take three terms, which is essentially six months. Probably because in that instance, because he's only 15, it represents a large chunk of his life. For me, six months is not as large of a chunk of my life. So Manette thinks that it's going to be less than three terms, and others think it's going to be more. And then Quoth brings out his, I'm going to study the Chandrian. Dracula's. I'd like to study Dracula's. The reaction he gets, I think, shapes a lot of the future. Quoth is still young and still impressionable and still gives a crap about what other people think. And he quickly backpedals and says, no, I want to learn about folklore and folklore in other countries. And I want to look at it from Tecum's theory of narrative septagy, trying to make it sound smarter than he's initially brought it up as being. I'm really just interested in narrative frameworks. I want to study it from a literary perspective. Rare. <laughs> <laughs> I also notice that Sim, here being the good friend, notices that one, Monette is being mean and calls him on it, and two, asks him, are you okay? Have you slept? Are you taking care of yourself? That's, again, that looking out for other people that... I think makes Simmons such an interesting character. He's a good guy. He's an actual good guy. And I think that Quoth takes advantage of that. Agreed. So next, we find our antagonist in the form of Ambrose. Yeah, Ambrose is basically a pantomime villain. Ambrose is dripping with... I'm an asshole. And of course, Quoth is also a little bit silly here, expecting his name to be in the book. He's been at the university for all of maybe three hours. I have seen Active Directory take anywhere from 24 to 48 hours for everything to replicate through. And this is a completely analog system. And he's thinking, oh yeah, obviously all of the books are going to be updated. How many new students are in the school at any given time? Did they actually completely finish admissions or did they break for lunch? Is Lauren even anywhere near the archives at this point? Right. <laughs> a little bit of skepticism is understandable, but he didn't have to be a jerk about it. Inasmuch as Ambrose is a bit of an ash, 
Quoth is also, he comes across as entitled and overeager and not caring about other people and not caring about processes. He's not thinking about how he actually fits into the overall society. He's not thinking about the world. He's thinking about everything purely through the lens of himself, which is something that obviously he has not gotten over. He still thinks that everything is about him. Ambrose, the way that he is portrayed in this particular section, he seems like he and Savoy are two different sides of a coin. Both of them are nobility, but Savoy, while being self-centered, is generally nice. And Ambrose has probably gotten his fair share of, oh my god, I am just trying to get through an assignment, or oh my god, I am just trying to finish this thing that I am working on in peace, and yet another one of you little pissants shows up. And immediately, Quoth assumes that Quoth is Ambrose's only antagonist. Quoth assumes that he is there to be the Jerry to Ambrose's Tom. You say that, and then I am reminded of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah. Quoth thinks that he is Holt to Ambrose's Wunsch. <laughs> <laughs> For a more upstate reference. And then, of course, Ambrose writes him off with the goddamn first-termers, and everyone said that about freshmen. I don't care how wonderful you are and how great you are as a senior. When you were a freshman, everyone was just like, oh. I think the only thing worse than a freshman is somebody who is visiting the college from a high school and thinks that they are super hot. Shirt. So not only is Ambrose there being a complete and utter jerk, but halfway through his screed, a couple of Ambrose's friends show up and ask him if he's going to go to the Aeolian. And now this is our first mention of the Aeolian, which will become a central location in the books. But I like that it's introduced so nonchalantly, and it feels more like it's part of the world without being called out. Yeah, it's kind of the local watering hole for a lot of the students. I think it's the upscale watering hole. It would be like going to a concert hall rather than the local dive bar. Yeah. So then we come to Sympathy in the Mains, which is Quoth's first day of class. As we have talked about a few times before, this is not what he expected. I think this is a weeding out general education class. Everyone's got to take it. And this is where you learn whether you've got what it takes to actually persist past the boring slog, or if you're going to just drop out. In some ways, Hem reminds me a little of one of the teachers that I had in ninth grade it was for my science class, and I can't for the life of me remember what the science of that science class was. But that teacher took delight in reading the warnings on the bottle of hydrochloric acid. He wanted to scare the piss out of all of us. He wanted us to listen to him. He was generally regarded as an asshole. He took such glee in it. He wanted the 14 and 15 year old kids that he had to deal with on a daily basis to not put a hole through their hands. Not necessarily because he didn't want us to be hurt, 
but because he didn't want the inconvenience of us being hurt. <laughs> and if they weren't dead, they'd be expelled, to quote Rowan Atkinson. <laughs> That's right, expelled. In this segment here, Quoth paints him with that old kicking the dog trope, where if you want to show that someone is a villain and will then have their uppance coming, what you do is you have them just being jerks to innocent bystanders, oftentimes puppies. And each of the students who is late is basically a puppy to be kicked by Hem, just so that we know, yeah, Hem is a bad guy and whatever Quoth does to him is okay. This is Quoth, the canny storyteller, using these tropes to justify his own poor behavior towards Hem. Part of why this doesn't really work in Quoth's favor is because Quoth never actually does or says anything to defend the people who he portrays as being victimized. He never speaks out in their favor. He never tries to call out the poor treatment of them or anything like that. He just says, okay, this guy's a jerk, so anything I do to him is justified. I also think in this case there's a little bit of poor writing almost. I say this loving a lot of things that Patrick Rothfuss has done, but I think that the use of him being a sexist jerk is a shortcut. We're supposed to see him as being evil or evil-ish by the way that he treats maybe the one woman in his class. And I don't like the trope of you're supposed to not treat women this way, so this person is a jerk, or this person is painted with this massive brush of you shouldn't like them. Because also, we never see Rhea again. Exactly. Quoth himself doesn't treat Rian with any more respect or consideration than Hem does. What? We're on page 270-ish. So that means that this has like 450 more pages in this book, plus a thousand pages in the next book. There's very little female representation in the first place, and almost every single one of them has at one point or another been viewed as a sex object, whether that be by harassment from him, which if he said that, he is a jerk and he doesn't deserve our respect. But at the same time, maybe flesh out the female characters a little and give them a complex life that has nothing to do with their status as someone that another character could date. Yes. And I like Davy and I like Mola. Both of them are kind of free from that. Mola especially doesn't have a deep or interesting character. You could say the same thing about Simon. So I'm not going to say that it's just women. And again, I can justify this as it's really Kvothe and it speaks to Kvothe's character in how much he just doesn't care or have any intellectual curiosity whatsoever or empathy for anyone else besides him. He kind of has the bear killed my parents syndrome. You familiar with that? So it was an SNL sketch a while back basically this kid who is treating everybody like crap. And then everyone says, oh, don't worry about him, a bear ate his parents. And then everyone's just like, oh, okay, well that explains everything. And so the kid just keeps behaving worse and worse. You know, he's 
insulting people. Don't worry, a bear ate his parents. Oh, okay. Oh, look, he just beat someone up. Well, a bear ate his parents. Oh, okay, it's, it's fine then. And it just kept using this as an excuse for worse and worse treatment. And it's okay to have trauma and to be dealing with a lot of stuff, but you still own how you treat other people. And I don't think Quoth really gets that. He is so wrapped up in his trauma that he doesn't actually show any regard for other people except insofar as they help to address that trauma. You can have a terrible childhood, you can have all these tragedies, but it doesn't excuse you treating people like crap. It doesn't excuse you being inconsiderate to them. And for a class about sympathy, he doesn't actually learn much about sympathy in the real world. To be fair though, he also kind of just drops this class two days in. He hasn't even seen if there's something further on that he might be able to learn from it. In Hem's defense, this is an introduction class. His job is to make sure that everyone is prepared. He can't be sitting here making up special dispensation for the one smart kid. Everyone's got to take the class, take the good grade, see what you can learn from it, and see if maybe you can help some of your other students. Absolutely precisely on the help your other students. I had to take a general ed course that was basically philosophy for non-majors. I took it in my junior year. I was a philosophy major. I knew everything in that course really well. I had gone into things that people were spending a single lecture on. I had spent months on. That meant that my job was take the class, do as well as I can in it, which was pretty easy for me to do, and then answer questions for my fellow students after class if I could help. That's literally the best thing that you can do in those sorts of situations. It doesn't do anybody any good for you to be disrupting the class or trying to get special treatment. And hey, sometimes maybe that act of teaching it will make you better at it. And I love how Quoth is self-congratulatory on his diplomacy here after class when he's asking for something that's really not going to help him out at all. Part of diplomacy is knowing when it's even worth it to ask for something. On top of that, he tries to have a serious conversation with him outside of office hours. If you're able to have a serious conversation with your professor outside of office hours, you count yourself lucky. Office hours are there for a reason. Respect those. So are syllabuses. Syllabi? Syllabi. Syllabi. I know that you oftentimes spoke with your professors outside of office hours, but that was also after establishing a friendly rapport with them. I mean, I'm still friends with quite a few of them. Right. But we would constantly, in the middle of friendly conversation, have students stand off to the side and just sit there and wait and look at the professor and want me to shut up. And this happened after I graduated also, where the poor professor is just sitting there trying to have a conversation that's probably not even related to school things. And the student is just, I want to know something. I need you to talk to me. I don't know when your office hours are because I didn't read the syllabus. Ah, uh, <laughs> I saw you. You're mine now. So after Quoth unsuccessfully convinces him that he is smart enough not to have to take this class, he traipses off to the archives and we get our first introduction to a female student that we actually get a little more information about as time goes on 
Fella is a presence throughout the rest of the story, which is great. But our introduction to her is Kvothe is so enamored with the books that he doesn't notice that there is a hot chick right in front of him six inches away. I'm not in love with this introduction. Me neither. Again, more object than person. It's a little male gazy. It really is. Let's move on. Yeah. I do note, though, that Quoth makes a point of stating that the room with all of the books is lit with sympathy lamps. This will be important. We are being hit over the head with the idea that Quoth is about to be an idiot. Again. And of course, also, he is warned that the books don't leave the archives because Master Lauren will react badly. <laughs> I have a note in part of the book that says, can you say foreshadowing? I put down Chekhov's librarian much. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually put that down when Sim was talking about how he would rather be caught by a mother bear than Lauren if he did anything bad to the books. So much as folding a page back. And then the next thing we get in those foreshadowing moments is the books don't leave this room. One kid was caught with a book outside of the archives, and I have never seen Lauren be that mad. So, Quoth, first day of school, starts researching the Chandrian. Draculas. Yes. Reports of Draculas and their signs. <laughs> Red eyes, howling wolves, aversion to garlic and sunlight. <laughs> Transylvanian accents. Oh my god. <laughs> Dracula killed my parents. <laughs> a Dracula. A Dracula did it. <laughs> Not the Dracula. A Dracula. <laughs> Don't worry, it's fine. A Dracula killed his parents. <laughs> anyway. So he requests any information he can get about the Chandrian. And then spends a little bit of time perusing the books and picks one called The Mating Habits of the Common Dracus. This is Chronicler's book. I'm always so confused as to when Chronicler attended the university, because if he wrote his book long enough ago that it is in the archives, when in the ever-loving heck did he go to the school? So my theory has always been that he was at the university before Kvothe, achieved his rank, got his giller, and then continued to work for Lauren, essentially, as a, one of his traveling scribs who would acquire books and stories and things like that, staying on in sort of a research capacity. So he'd be constantly in and out of the university as an institution, even as an alumni, and maintain his contacts. That seems to fit with the work that he's done that we know about. That's fair. And I noticed that when he finally gets his book about the Chandrian, which is, of course, just listed as a collection of fairy stories where brave orphans trick the Chandrian, win riches, marry princesses, and live happily ever after, which is basically what Kvothe wants. Even as he poo-poos it, he would want nothing more than that. Brave orphan, that's him right there. Tricking the Chandrian, that's his M.O. Winning riches, well, sign him up. Marrying princesses, well, yeah, he's on board with that. And happily ever after, of course. Who wouldn't want a happily ever after? As we shall see, I don't think it comes to that. Probably not. 
And I think most of that is not because of the deviousness of the Chandrian, but because of Quoth's own weaknesses. A hell of his own making. Pretty much. After being sorely disappointed with his first attempt to get any information about the Chandrian, he asks about the Amir. And I know that this is the point at which Lauren decides to step in. And this is also kind of silly. This is like saying, I would like to study the Rosicrucians. Explain, because I was thinking the Illuminati or something to that effect. The Rosicrucians are part of the Illuminati. They are a specific branch of the, quote, Illuminati that has ties back to the Crusades, where almost all of these Illuminati organizations seem to have their roots. And the surest mark of a Rosicrucian is one who, if asked if they were a Rosicrucian, would say they are not a Rosicrucian, which is kind of absurd. But a tactic that you have used many, many times when we are having indignant discussions. Oh, yes. And here's where Lauren comes in and says, you maybe want to back off on that. He says, it's for the greater good. Which, of course, is one of the most terrifying phrases you'll ever hear. For the greater good. The greater good. <laughs> but we get a callback to how Manette's reaction to Quoth searching out information about the Chandrian dissuades Quoth from actually owning up to his curiosity and his need to find out more information about these figures that cause such trauma in his life and that he has proof exist. I mean, his own recounting and his own self, he, for all we know, is being accurate and this truly happened. But he also has a deep mistrust of adults. I would not have gotten through my college experience if I had not spoken in depth with most of the teachers that I had such respect for. I can clearly remember at least six, nope, seven, nope, more teachers that I was on a first name basis with that when I was confused about something, I could talk to them. When I was so behind that I was stressing out and spending 16 hours a day trying to figure out what in the ever-loving crap I did wrong on programming something, I could talk to them and go, hey, this is making my life an absolute misery of anxiety and hell. Can we figure out a way that this isn't going to just make me tear my hair out? Do you have any suggestions for me? What could I do to still fulfill the letter of this assignment, not fail it, and pass your class, and still learn from it? What can I do? Yeah, Kvothe is not very good at expressing vulnerability of any kind. And it's telling that through all of these years, he has not once spoken to anyone about who he is or where he's from. We don't know that later on he doesn't talk to Lauren or doesn't talk to Illidan or doesn't talk to Herma. But at the beginning, especially, he is so reluctant to bring up anything to do with his past or to ask anyone for help. And then when he decides to ask for help, he asks other people who are just as clueless as he is. He doesn't go to the experts. Lauren is at the damn university. Why ask Simon and Fella and Willem to help find this information 
multiple terms into his stay at the university. Why not finally pull your head up and go, you know, maybe when Warren said this isn't a good study for your first term, maybe your sixth or seventh term, you could go and say, hey, could I maybe have a discussion with you about those things that I am intensely curious about for these reasons? And again, it's his unwillingness to open up that I think gets him in trouble here. I think the part that really makes me upset over the fact that Kvothe will not reach out and talk to Lauren is because Lauren says twice that he has a great respect for curiosity. It stands to reason that he would be the person that you would go to and say, I want answers. Do you have them? So now it's time for us to talk about our Fornemos. And it is my turn to pick that out. I think this time I'm going to go with Simon. Like we saw in our discussion, Simon does a couple things that I think are really important. So for one, when he was insulted, he didn't immediately just get defensive. If other people wanted to step up, he would let them do so, but he wasn't going to further escalate the situation with Savoy because he didn't want to. He valued his friendship. And I think that we come across that instance often. We value our friendships and therefore we don't want to call people out. You got to pick your battles. The other thing is when Simon notices that Manette's being testy and cranky, he, one, is gentle in his reprimand and says, hey, are you okay? He doesn't sit there and, you know, tisk tisk at Manette. He says, hey, when's the last time you slept? You seem like you're a little on edge. And then when Savoy calls Simmons' dad a paper duke, he doesn't call Savoy out for how that hurt him. Simmon stiffened a bit and concentrated on his food. It very clearly affected him, but he valued his friendship with Savoy over defending himself. And he also recognizes that Savoy is probably more drunk than he usually is. So while the words hurt, he gives him a little bit more grace instead of trying to hit back with an insult. And I look at how Simon, his first checks are sensible ones. First thing he does when he meets Quoth is, hey, have you got your living situation figured out? No? Come on, let's go figure that out. But I really appreciated that he is judgment-free towards status, then looks for ways to help. He's a real peacemaker, and you can see why he's a valued friend for Kvothe, even if maybe Kvothe doesn't treat him as such. I'd say we should all try and be more like Simon. I agree with you. So now it is time for us to take to heart the lessons of Master Elodin and expand our understanding of the world with an interesting fact of the week. This week, it is Phoenix's turn, and she needs to interest me or face the raspberries. Dun-dun-dun. Alrighty. Did you know that llamas are an effective guard animal for other livestock, particularly sheep? They're in fact more reliable as a guard animal than dogs. They have been known to kill coyotes by stomping them to death. They don't require training, as this guarding behavior is instinctual. And they will herd sheep, and often make an unnerving shriek noise that usually scares off coyotes and other predators. In this case, though, you just want one llama. You do not want multiple llamas. 
if you have one guard llama, it will bond with the herd of sheep. And if there are multiple llamas, they'll just bond with one another and ignore the sheep. So I guess the trick is trying to make sure that you're using the llama's jerkish nature in your favor instead of letting it work against you. Absolutely true. Okay, I'm on board. <laughs> no raspberries. Yay! Oh, llamas are mean. They are. <laughs> I don't want to mess with a llama. Me neither. They spit. They do. And they kill coyotes. Yeah, wouldn't want to get stopped by that. No. So, with that, it is time for us to share our seven words. It was my task to find seven words from the book, and I found these and they just really spoke to me. I appreciate your agreeing to do this. Aw, that's really cool. Yeah. Who says that? Kvothe says that to Master Lauren when he's discussing getting back the book from the bookseller. Oh, that's even better. It spoke to me. I, I was like, well, hey, you know, I, I feel that way about doing this podcast with you. And I know you feel the same way towards me. It made me smile. There are a lot of really good seven-word sentences that I really adore in this chunk. And I would like to go over a couple of them. Okay. Because there are also some things that show up multiple times. One of them shows up twice in the course of a page. And it is, I have a great respect for curiosity. That is also a very good one. That was Lauren hitting Foth over the head with the obvious bat. And Foth ignores it. Also, the mating habits of the common Dracus. <laughs> I thought that was clever. Those are seven words to make a woman fall in love with you. <laughs> what woman? Well. And then half a loaf is better than none. There's some words of wisdom there. Thank you for calling those out as well. Those show up all the time. Even as these are words spoken by Kvothe, I don't think he realizes the importance of these words. I'd be inclined to agree with you. So now it is my turn to give you words from life. So I was thinking about how sometimes people call their significant others or their little ones sunshines. And that's probably because one of the early ukulele songs that I learned is You Are My Sunshine. And it's something that you hear and it sounds kind of corny, but we're all about corniness. And so... My seven words are, some people have sunshines, I have sillies. You are constantly doing silly things to make me laugh, and I love it. I have no idea what you're talking about. Our cats also are very, very silly. One of them is very talky when she's got a toy in her mouth. It sounds like she's dying. The other one is very talky when you're trying to go to the bathroom. <laughs> And you're trying to get him out of the bathroom when you're about to take a shower and he looks at you and goes, meow, meow. They do funny things to make us laugh. And I think especially right now, we definitely need those funny things to make us laugh. Right now, I feel like there is a lot of worry. For the record, this is being recorded in March 2020. I think it's important to know what makes the other person you're stuck with laugh and what makes them 
more able to survive day to day. And I think you do that in spades. Thank you. You're welcome. And with that, we come to the end of our episode. Will, I would like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 39 and 40 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of questioning authority. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And a huge thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production and editing, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please become a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. In addition, you can find us on social media. We have a Facebook and Instagram and a Twitter, as well as all of our episodes going up on YouTube. And punishment videos and silly videos. Look up Tales from the Waystone if you're looking on YouTube or Facebook. And at Instagram and Twitter, we are at WaystonePod. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. I'm giving you outtakes material, so you can't be mad at me. <laughs> can't be? Shouldn't be. Shouldn't be? Shouldn't. I'm going to settle with that. <laughs> You're adorable. Thank you. You are too. Thank you. <laughs>